Well, good evening. Hope you had a restful Sunday afternoon. We continue here through Ecclesiastes. Last week, we started our uh, study in Ecclesiastes and uh, got some good information from the beginning of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon began to uh, carry us on this journey. Uh, so just for recap, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, which of course is David's son. And uh, so Solomon is uh, he's giving information about all the journeys of his life. Uh, if you read uh, about Solomon, Solomon had amassed more wealth than anyone even modern day uh, could fathom. Uh, Solomon had uh, done all of the things that life could offer. Uh, Solomon had gone, as we'll see here in just a few minutes, uh, he had gone to uh, Jerusalem University. He had gotten all the knowledge and information that one could obtain, and yet he ends, uh, we get to the cha- uh, end of chapter 1, and he talks about vanity of vanities, and he says it's all but just temporary. Uh, it's, it, it's dissatisfying in all the pursuits of life. And so tonight, as we look at chapter 2, uh, Solomon continues on that journey, and then at the end, he gives us a nugget of truth that helps us to stomach all of what we've talked about. Because if you came last week, I know, I think there were a few uh, people in church last Wednesday night. It was their first time to be at Michael Memorial, and they get vanity of vanities. And so, uh, you know, it's just the way that, uh, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's what Scripture says. And so it's, it's a help for us to find the right perspective uh, in what Ecclesiastes teaches us. And so as we jump right in tonight, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And so what Solomon does is uh, he begins with, I said to myself. And so Solomon begins to talk to himself. Now, we could probably talk for an hour or two on what that really means. So when he says, I said to myself, well, he's, he's telling himself these things uh, as he is, is uh, you know, we're privy to the thoughts, if you will, of what he is talking about. And so he begins by giving himself advice. As a matter of fact, five different times Solomon spoke to himself. And so I want, I want you to think about that this uh, evening as you think about Solomon talking to himself. We all do the same thing. I mean, you know, if we were honest, you know, how many of you talk to yourself? You ever had a conversation with yourself? We've all done that, right? You know, it doesn't matter. It could, be, it could be as frivolous as, you know, hey, what am I doing to actually responding to what am I doing, right? I mean, we, we have conversations with ourselves. And one of the problems with that is it, it really depends upon what you are saying to yourself that, that really matters. You know, what is it that you are telling yourself? One of the things that people often struggle with is, oh, well, I'm not good enough. Well, where did you learn that? You know, why do you think Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus? Well, it's because self-condemnation is one of the greatest enemies of humanity is that we look at ourselves and we say, well, there's no way I could ever do that. Or, you know, I'm just not good enough or I just don't measure up. And so that's one of the many ways that we begin to talk to ourselves. Or uh, maybe it's on the other side to where we justify our actions. Well, I deserve this or I've worked hard for this, or whatever it may be in your life, that you began to say and you began to tell yourself. In Psalms, and this is not uh, on your handout, you may want to write this down, Psalms chapter chapter 42, the psalmist 
writes a very familiar passage. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so then he begins in verse 3 to tell us why he's saying all this. He says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long. So he says, I've been crying. He's in distress. And all the people like with Job around him say, where is your God? So the psalmist says, these things, verse 4, I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And so he talks about this pit of despair that he finds himself in. And look what he says here in verse 5. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? So he begins to talk to himself. Self, things are really bad. Self, things have gotten to the point, uh, you know, why, why are we so worried about this? Why are we so distressed about this? And so then he responds to himself, and this is what he says. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see, in our lives, what we tell ourselves really matters. You see, in the kingdom of God, anything that we do for the kingdom of God is an impossible task. In and of ourselves, there's nothing that we can accomplish on our own that will have any value, as Solomon will show us here in chapter 2, to where we will have satisfaction from that. And so, as we read here in these conversations, we need to really be careful about those things that we tell ourselves. One of the things that I often, often, often remind myself of, I mean, you know, my goodness, look at the negativity around us. You turn on the news and within five seconds you want to throw your TV out the window. And so I, I remind myself of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 very, very, very often, uh, which says whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, uh, whatever things are of good report, to think on these things. And, and this is what I try to tell my kids all the time. There's tons of negativity around you. And, I mean, you can pick where you want to get it from, and you can get a full dose. But the Bible says to think on these things that are pure, that are lovely, that are of a good report. And so Solomon begins to tell himself these things that are going on. And so the question is, are, what are you telling yourself? You see, in Solomon's pursuit of happiness, he told himself that he could find it. And so he set out on a journey to do so. And so tonight, as we jump into uh, chapter 2, I want to share with you a few things. First tonight, I want to share with you what the human pursuit is. So what is it that humans pursue? You see, in life, everybody's got a goal, an objective that they're striving for. And the reason you're striving for that, the reason that I'm striving for that, the reason that all humans are striving for it, is because of one reason and one reason alone. Is that we think that in the destination, there comes satisfaction. We think that if I just achieve that job title, if I get that uh, checking account balance, if I get that uh, position or whatever, if I, if I obtain that relationship, whatever it is that you may think uh, that you're striving for, the only reason you're doing it is because in your mind, there is an end to which you will be satisfied. And so that's what Solomon is going to show us here, is that there are many pursuits in life that we can all strive after. And in our minds, we're going to tell ourselves that it's a worthy endeavor. As a matter of fact, what the enemy is going to do is he's going to plant the desire in your heart to make you believe or to attempt to make you believe that whatever it is that the end of that will achieve is worthwhile in passing all other things. 
Solomon reached the pinnacle of all three pursuits that he pursued, as we'll look at here in a second. And yet in the end, he says, it just wasn't worth it. So the first thing that Solomon pursues, you see, the human pursuit in the pursuit of meaning. Trying to get this clicker to work. There we go. In the pursuit of meaning, you may have to help me keep it going. Uh, In an attempt to, to find happiness, what we do is we fill ourselves with all sorts of things. You know, we think that this possession will give us happiness, or we, uh, we think that this position will give us happiness. And so uh, what we do is we pursue happiness in every area of our life. I mean, think about it. Even in the area of food, uh, all the marketing that goes on to make us feel, if, if we'll just eat this Big Mac, or if we'll get the Super Mac, or whatever it is now, that if we'll just eat that, then we'll be satisfied. And so if we drive around and we say, you know, the age-old joke about the husband asking the wife, where do you want to eat? And, oh, well, it just doesn't, and they never can decide. It's because we think that we've got to make the perfect decision that will bring us the ultimate satisfaction for those three or four hours. And so in the pursuit of happiness or in the pursuit of meaning, we, we put many things in our path. And so look what Solomon writes in uh, chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I said in my heart, so again we find him talking to himself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And so what Solomon says here is that, hey, I've reached the the pinnacle of knowledge. I've gotten doctorates and PhDs and masters. I've received all that information could give me. He says in verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So he wanted to know one end of the spectrum to the other. He says, I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You see, in the world in which we live, we are told that knowledge is power. The more that you know, the more powerful that you become. The more that you know, the more powerful that you become. That's what the world says, right? Those who know the most are in the most positions of authority. And so Solomon is saying here is, listen, you can pursue all the information and all the knowledge that you want, but it's not going to lead you to the happiness and satisfaction that you desire. You see, Solomon realized that knowing more doesn't actually change the way that things actually are. I mean, think about this. How many of you have ever been sick? Right? We've all been sick. We've had ailments or, you know, symptoms. And how many of you have taken that information that you knew and you went to a common little tool that we all love called Google? You ever Googled your symptoms before? I mean, you're dying in, the, in a matter of hours if you Google your symptoms. It doesn't matter what it is. You can have a toothache and the next thing, you, you know, you're going to have to have your left foot amputated or something. I mean, Google all the information that's out there We take that information and we think that knowledge changes our scenario. But guess what? It doesn't. Knowledge doesn't change your uh, situation. It doesn't change where you are. You see, what Solomon found is that a lot of learning actually exposes... A lot of learning actually exposes one to the complexity of life in a way that can be unbearable. And so what happens is that when you learn what it is that you are pursuing, what, what, what comes with knowledge is responsibility, right? 
And so when you gain all this information, then all of a sudden you become responsible for that information in which you've learned. And so Solomon says, look, I've gained all the information that there is. I've been exposed to the, the most amount of knowledge that one could obtain. I've pursued it, and yet it didn't bring me the satisfaction in, in which I thought it would. Now, I'm not against education by no stretch of the imagination. I, I love to learn, and you know, if it were possible and time allowed for it, I would continue to get degree after degree after degree uh, because I like to achieve things, and I like to learn about things, and uh, you know, as Baptists, we're, we're spiritual gluttons when it comes to information. I mean, we love to learn more and more and more and more and more. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about degrees, diplomas, certificates of education. You see, the degrees on the wall of Solomon did not change the longing in his heart. He says, hey, I've gotten the master's and the doctorate and the PhDs. and didn't give me what I was looking for. I got to thinking about that. I have some degrees, and so I was thinking about degrees, and I thought about the value of a degree. Now, again, I'm not removing the importance of education. But you see, your degree is actually one of the few things in life that is only valuable to you. Have you ever seen a four-year degree for sale on eBay? Have you ever seen someone auctioning off their master's degree? Of course not. I mean, it would just be a sheet of paper to you if you weren't the one who actually earned that degree. Now, of course, you can use that degree for many wonderful things. But if the end in which you're pursuing satisfaction comes with the uh, obtainment uh, or obtaining of a degree, well, then you're never going to be satisfied. Well, why is that? Because there's always someone else out there that's smarter than you in your field or more of an expert or been uh, more experienced. And so this satisfaction that we try to obtain in getting a degree, well, it's what you do with your knowledge or with your degree that matters. And so Solomon said, look, knowing it all really doesn't change anything. And so he leaves us in verse 17 by saying that it's simply a striving after the wind. It's, it, it leaves you empty. It's just here today and gone tomorrow. And so he says, pursuing education is not going to get you where you'd like to be. And so then we get to chapter 2. And he says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he says, okay, well, if knowledge didn't get me anything, if it didn't uh, obtain satisfaction and, and happiness in my life, well, then it must be pleasure. And so what he began to do is he began to test himself with pleasure. Now, there was, there was nothing out of reach for Solomon. So whatever your mind could capacitate in terms of happiness and pleasure, Solomon had it times ten. Whether, you know, whatever fleeting pleasures that man could come up with, Solomon was the expert in this category. And then he says, behold, this was also vanity. He said of laughter, uh, verse 2, it is mad, of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the uh, sun or under heaven during the few days of their life. So he said, look, I've, had, uh, I've got 700 wives and concubines. I've got all the gold and silver that anyone could ever imagine to amass. I, I've got all the degrees from the University of Jerusalem that they offer. Every degree track I have accomplished. 
uh, alcohol, wine. I've used everything to try to cheer my body. And he says, behold, this is all vanity. You see, what happens with humanity is that when knowledge doesn't satisfy, pleasure becomes the highest aim. I mean, think about what people do. You just think about alcohol, for instance. People medicate themselves with alcohol in an attempt to wash away the the troubles in which they have in life or in order to achieve this satisfaction of simply ignorance being bliss. That if I can make myself forget about it, then I can achieve happiness. To numb themselves or to numb uh, yourself to a point to where you don't even know or you're not aware of the problems that are in front of you. And so it is the opposite of knowledge is that I end up knowing absolutely nothing or I numb myself to the point of knowing absolutely nothing. And the world has done a fantastic job of selling this. I mean, the next line in your handout says, if uh, the world sells the line, if it feels good, well, I don't have to fill that in for you. Everybody knows what that is. Yeah, of course, just do it, right? If it feels good, just do it. That's what the world tells us. So whatever it is that brings you uh, satisfaction and pleasure in life, well, the world says, well, grab life by the horns and go after it. Whatever it is that you may be. There, there seem to be no lines today, right? I mean, I'm a very objective person, but we are more increasingly more and more living in a subjective world. And so Solomon says, hey, uh, if it feels good, the world says if it feels good, do it. And so I'm going to take that and I'm going I'm to shoot for that being my highest aim. He says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. You see, the world says laughter is the best medicine, right? That's what you hear all the time. Well, if laughter were the best medicine, then why isn't it curing anybody? This week I uh, Googled Googled, uh, comedians. It is astonishing how many comedians have committed suicide. Astonishing. I mean, you look at, it can be, pick a decade. It could be any decade. You know, there were 70s and 60s, and of course the most recent and probably the most famous is Robin Williams. And so we look at this comedian who can make the world laugh. I mean, you know, that's what we all want to do is be a good joke teller, right? We want to we make other people feel good inside. We want to make them laugh. And so a comedian, you would think, is at the pinnacle of life, and yet they seem to be the most socially awkward and most depressed people that there are. So Robin Williams' widow was interviewed after his death, the first public interview that she gave, and she said that he was chronically depressed. Robin Williams, who would have known? And so Solomon says here, well before Robin Williams was ever born, that laughter is simply mad. And so he says, I've pursued knowledge, it's unsatisfying. I've, I've pursued pleasure and, and jolly. It's unsatisfying. And so then he talks about pursuit number three, which is probably the most common to, to males today. And he says in verse four, I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards, vineyards for myself. You see, if knowledge and pleasure don't satisfy, then man resolves himself to work. And that's what humanity has done, right? Is, well, let's just work more. If we can't get satisfaction and happiness, well, then I'm going to numb myself to reality or I'm going to remove myself from reality in in, uh, achieving uh, the life that God has intended for me. And I'm just going to work as much as I possibly can. 
And so Solomon said, that's exactly what I did. He says, if I could just work a little longer, if I work a little longer, I'm going to get more hours, I'm going to make more money, and then at that point, then maybe I'll be happy. That's what the pursuit of mankind is today, is to work more, to make more, to be happier. Yet in all of his achievements, when Solomon gets to the top and he looks back and he surveys all of the buildings that he had built, all of the wonderful uh, things that had been accomplished in his work, he realized that it was just simply a vapor in the wind, that it just didn't satisfy. He says in verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing so, all of the work that I had given up and all of the time that it took me to do it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mean, if you think about, think about your job. I was thinking about this this week. So here's a dose of reality for all of us. Whatever it is that you do, it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is, if you cease to exist tomorrow, within a couple of weeks, there's going to be somebody in your spot. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, it could be a, you could be, you know, a professional in, in your career, or you could be a laborer, you could work with your hands. It doesn't matter what it is that you do. Whatever it is, if you cease to exist, in just a few short weeks, they're going to have somebody right in there doing that right thing for you. And yet we give our lives to that stuff. Now, I'm not saying that work is invaluable. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that knowledge is invaluable. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying that if knowledge or your job is what you find satisfaction in, then that you'll always be dissatisfied. And that's what Solomon is showing. We'll get to in a second what he shows the perception is what that we should have. But yet, if we, if we constantly put our satisfaction and happiness in those things, well, then we'll constantly be dissatisfied. You see, you can be replaced as an employee. But did you know that no one can do your job as a parent or a sibling or a spouse? I mean, think about it relationally. You know, relationally, you can't be replaced. Think about it. So you only have one biological mother and father, just one. Now, you, you may have you know, step-parents or whatever the situation may be, but biologically, you only have one mom and one dad. You only have one brother and one sister or two brothers or two sisters biologically. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever that is, that can't be replaced. A, a spouse, right? You're only going to get married for the first time one time. That's, that's, the, that's the only way that that works. And so relationally, you and I, we can't be replaced. And so Solomon is getting to this and saying, listen, if you think about your life from, an, from a relational standpoint, well, then things will begin to change in the way that you do things. You'll begin to see life differently. You'll begin to view people differently. And so he says, I pursued these different things. But then he shares with us what the problem with all of that is. He says, I've pursued all these things, knowledge and pleasure, work. But there's a problem with me placing my satisfaction or the attempt at satisfaction in those things. He says, there's a problem. So what is it? Well, in verse 9, 
He says, so I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He says in verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So what is Solomon saying here? He says, I, I, I surpassed everyone. And yet, importantly written here in verse 9, that my wisdom remained with me. You see, it'd be easy for us to look at Solomon and his uh, endless pursuits or his dissatisfying pursuits, and we could say, well, he was, he was acting in a manner that was foolish. You know, in, uh, in chapter 1, as uh, we talked, Pastor Tony talked last week, one of the things that he brought to uh, the forefront was the fact that a lot of times when people read Ecclesiastes, they say, well, this is someone who doesn't pursue after God. But Solomon's about to make that very clear that that's not the case here. He's saying that this is not for the, uh, for the non-Christian. This is not just for the ones that, that don't know God. This is for everyone. The permanent human problem, not the permanent believer problem, but the permanent, again, human problem is that every single one of us will die. At some point, death will call your number. You see, throughout this experiment, Solomon has not been living like a fool. He says in verse 3, my heart still guiding me with what? With wisdom. So he's saying, listen, I was conscious the entire time of what I was doing. I knew exactly what I was doing. I wasn't, he said when he talked about uh, the, the folly of his heart, that he wasn't chasing something with no thought of the implications of what those things might bring. He says, I was thinking with wisdom. My heart was being led by wisdom and understanding. It was still guiding me. And so it is the reality of death that Solomon brings to the forefront here. It's the reality of death that he knew exactly what he was doing. And so the, death, the, the reality of death began to alter his perspective on all the achievements of his life. So as he thought back and he looked over everything that he had achieved, his perspective began to change. He, he began to talk about those who would come after him. He, says, he, he wrote in verse 18, he says, I hated all of my toil in which I told under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Now, let's, let's pause for a second. Who came after Solomon? It was Rehoboam, right? It was his son. And what, what is the story that we read about Rehoboam when he, uh, when he took over for King Solomon? That he had a decision that he could make. That he had this, uh, the enemies had uh, approached him and it was to make peace. And so uh, he had the opportunity to follow the God-given wisdom of the elders that were giving him godly wisdom. And they said, hey, you may want to consider this, this offer that you've got. And so he says, okay, well, I'll consider that. And then what did he do? He went to his younger friends, the foolish ones, the Bible says, and he asked them what they should do. And they says, well, absolutely not. We're not, we're not making peace with them. And so Solomon, of course, not knowing that that would happen, yet his fear would be that that thing would happen. You know, Pastor Tony talks a lot about fear being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Job says, I believe it's in chapter 3, the thing that I feared the most happened. And so Solomon began to think about all of this stuff that he was attempting to achieve and all of the accomplishments in life that he was amassing yet for someone else to enjoy. 
He says, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? It's amazing how people today think that life will last forever and that if I don't last forever, well, at least my control can last forever. Well, I want to be able to control what my children do or I want to be able to control what happens after I leave. Solomon says, well, who knows whether he he will be wise or be a fool. Yet he will be master of all of which I have told. He'll be the boss of everything that I've done. All the things that I've accomplished, all the benefits and hard work that I've put in will be simply given away and used. They'll use my wisdom under the sun. And he says, this is also vanity. So he writes in verse 22, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What is it worth? Why, why should I go out and give a thousand percent in the expectation of achieving satisfaction by my efforts? That's basically what Solomon is saying here. He says, what, what is the purpose? What is the reason? What is the meaning? He says, every single one of us at some point will step into eternity. In many different ways that will happen, but every single one of us aren't going to... I mean, think about this. In all of the achievements of mankind, of all of the things that we've been able to accomplish, I mean, we, we put a man on the moon in the 60s. I mean, look at what's happening uh, m- tomorrow, Monday, the eclipse, right? They, they tell us the minute that it will happen. I, I mean, how amazing is that? You know, at 131 or something, I believe, the sun is supposed to be at its you know, peak viewing or whatever uh, here in Mississippi. And so they, they know all of this information that's out. So all of this stuff is available. And yet the one thing that humanity can do nothing about is what? It's death. Now, we think we can, right? We think we can cheat death. I was watching uh, America's Got Talent the other night. And uh, I don't know if any of you saw the episode, but there was this guy on there. And uh, he was a clown. And uh, he, was, uh, he was doing the will of death. Maybe you, anybody see that? He was doing the will of death. Yeah, a few of you saw it. And so he's doing this little this wheel. It's a hamster wheel on both ends of, of this contraption that just spins around like a Ferris wheel. And so he gets on it and, you know, does running around and stuff. And, you know, they're, oh, you know, they're gasping. And so he, he gets, it, you know, he does his deal. He finishes so he comes and he stands in front of the judges. And so Simon Cowell and all of them were giving their assessment of what he did. And this is what two of them said. You defied death. That was death defying. I mean, you go back and look at it. That was death defying what you just did. No, it was not. At no moment in his performance, nor in the, every, any second in the existence of any human being, have we defied death. God alone controls death. But yet we think that we can somehow defy or that we can beat it. I mean, if you don't believe me, uh, Google uh, Walt Disney. He's cryogenically frozen right now because he believes that at some point that we'll be able to come up with some cure or some ailment uh, for whatever it is that he passed away from and that they can freeze him so they can bring him back when they come up with that cure. Look it up. And so we think that we can defeat death, but yet the one thing that we cannot come up with a cure to, a way to overcome it, is death. 
over and over and over, we hear the oldest living person is, what, 105, maybe 110? But yet we think the way that we live, that we will last forever. We, we think that. And so Solomon is bringing this perspective of reality to say, look, death is real. Nobody really wants to think about that, though. You know, oh, that's just morbid. You, you know, we don't want to talk about that. We refuse to think about that by filling our lives with other things. And so we, we began to change our perspective. And so we began to look at other things to, to get our mind off of it because the reality of it is that no one expects that. I think about that many, many times when you hear uh, people pass away. And, and I think I'll, oftentimes... I wonder what it is that they were thinking the few moments before they passed. You know, just, just thinking about it. I mean, I've had family members pass away in car accidents. And, you know, I think about, I wonder what it is that they were thinking right before they passed. Was it a good thought? Were they worried? Were they anxious? Were they happy? You know, what was going through their mind? Nobody wants to think about it, so we begin to distract ourselves. And we, and we tell ourselves that we can live forever. That we can, we can uh, overcome this uh, something that always comes to everyone, this thing called death, that somehow we can overcome it. And so through distraction and diversion, we use those things to console ourselves in the face of our miseries and confusions. You see, we really don't understand what we want to understand about death. You see, the design of death is perfect. I mean, think about it, from, and I'll give you a biblical example in just a second, but from biblical times to now, the concern has always been what? What is on the other side, right? Books have been written, I've been there, and I've come back, and let me tell you all that there is about it. Yet the Word of God gives us what the eternal perspective is, right? Because the body says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so that's what faith is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that uh, faith, hope, and love exist. And that's what faith is. Hebrews 11 1 says faith is the uh, evidence of... Uh, somebody help me. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, but it's the evidence of things not seen. And so it's, it's the things that we hope for in life and saying that my hope is in what? My hope is in Jesus Christ. And my faith is in Jesus Christ. It's, that's where faith comes in because Jesus said, what about faith? He said, blessed are those who believe in what? Have not yet seen. That's what faith is. Jesus said, you can look at something and believe in it, but that's not really faith. Faith is when you believe in something that you haven't quite yet seen. And so humanity has been searching forever to find this cure of what is on the other side. Even in Luke chapter 16, remember Lazarus that uh, stayed outside the gate of the rich man and he, he begged for his crumbs? Remember that story in the Bible? And the Bible says that he asked the question, he says, will you send someone back and tell my brothers? And what did Jesus say? He says they have the law and the prophets. If they won't come to faith through that, then they're not coming. You see, we want to know what's on the other side. We don't want to talk about it because we don't know what's over there. In our minds that we perceive that we don't have the answer, but yet the Word of God very clearly gives us what the answer to eternity is. We were all built with an eternal destination in mind from the very beginning. Listen, when Adam was created, he was created with eternity in mind. 
Every one of us were. And so what we do in our hearts is we say, well, if I can deceive myself into not believing that I'll die, then I surely will not die. I mean, isn't that what the enemy said in Genesis chapter 3? No, you're not going to die. It's not going to happen. You see, the reality is that if death does not inform the way that we live, then death is something that we are pretending does not exist. If it doesn't inform the way that we live, then it then it's simply something that we don't think exists. I mean, think about this. What, what if you live? I want you to just think for a second. What if you lived your life? What if we lived our lives as though you've, you've been asked the question before, if you had 24 hours to live, what would you do? You've been asked that question before. I've been asked. And so we start thinking, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't do this, or I would do this, or I would go. Well, why don't we do those things? Because we think we'll live forever. Well, there's always tomorrow. There's always next week. Oh, if I had 24 hours to live, I'll tell you what, I sure I would go talk to my neighbor. I would, I would tell my cousin about Christ. I, I would go and sit with my brother or, you know, I would go visit my parents who I haven't seen. And, you know, we come up with all these things that we say and then we never do them because we think we'll live forever. So it must, what if, it, what if we did live our life like today was the last one? What if we live like, all right, listen, you know, tomorrow, the 21st of August, 2017, we're going to shut this puppy down. This is the last day for me, and so I'm going to live like I'm leaving. What if we did that? How would it change your conversations? Would it change the way you treat your spouse or your children or your neighbor? I mean, would it? Some, some people may say yes. And so that's what Solomon is trying to bring to the forefront here is We've got to be honest about the reality of life. He says the permanent human problem is that everyone dies. Death comes to everyone. Consider Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, right? Steve Jobs had everything in modern day that we would say, hey, look, he created the soon to be the first trillion dollar company in the world. I think they're worth $850 billion today. Soon to be the first trillion dollar company in the world. Look at how he's changed uh, social interaction with just the iPhone. I, I saw a, a, a thing the other day that said that the iPhone replaces the entire uh, circular ad of Radio Shack from 1992, right? The calculator, the camera, uh, you know, all the things that you could buy from Radio Shack in 1992, you can buy in an iPhone today. I mean, think of how all that has changed. Think of how, uh, you know, today, touchscreen is all the new fad, right? Through the iPad and all the things. Even uh, Microsoft has gotten in and they have the Microsoft Surface and all, all that stuff came from Apple, right? Who, who came up with all that? Well, Steve Jobs had a huge part to do with every bit of that. And so then Steve Jobs contracted uh, you know, he had cancer, had pancreatic cancer. And so a man who could, you know, seemingly do whatever he wanted, he, he, you know, they sell 7 billion iPhones a week, it seems. All the things that he could imagine in life to get, and yet he passes away from pancreatic cancer. Because death is what? Death is not a respecter of persons. Doesn't, have much, doesn't matter how much you've accomplished or how little you've accomplished. 
The permanent problem is that death comes to all. And so none of us is permanent. And nothing that we do is permanent. So any accomplishments? Solomon says it's not permanent. And so now that we're all sad and discouraged, Solomon gives us all the pursuits in which he tried to achieve satisfaction and happiness. He says that there's this giant problem that humanity cannot get over, which is that we all will die. And so then he says, but there is a human perspective that we can live with that will totally transform the way you live. So you say, well, then what's the, what's the use? Well, if it's, you know, if it's all vanity of vanities, if none of those things achieve satisfaction, well, you know, why, sh- why should I even try? Why should I strive for anything if there is nothing but death that comes to all people? And so Solomon says, well, let's, let's look at what the true perspective of that actually is. So he says in verse 24, He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. So Solomon says, look, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment. You see, there is nothing inherent in humanity that makes it possible for us to extract enjoyment and purpose from the things that we do. You see, we, there's nothing inside of us that will allow you to receive the maximum amount of enjoyment and purpose from whatever you find yourself doing. Because that's not what you were built for. You see, we want to max out every opportunity. We want to max out every moment. But that's not the reason that God created you. It's not that you can achieve the, uh, the highest pinnacle of satisfaction or the highest level of satisfaction. You see, enjoyment is God's personal gift. Th- think about the Garden of Eden. God created the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created and placed in the Garden of Eden, which is always a point of reference for the greatest place ever. Right? I mean, we studied uh, in the last series, uh, it was a couple series ago, when we studied Unseen, we talked about how God is redeeming everything in the ex- expectation and anticipation of what? Of everything being returned to Eden. And all these Edenic references that the Bible uses in prophecy to say that there will be a day when the perfection that God created in the Garden of Eden will be fully realized again. And so the Garden of Eden is the pinnacle of of perfection it's it's the pinnacle of perfection in life and who was given the garden of eden god gave the garden of eden to adam and eve to work it to be uh, to have dominion over that he gave the most amazing thing that even humans today believe has ever existed he gave to humanity and so the expectation that we will receive joy from something that doesn't come from god is a falsehood that the devil sells every single day of the week you see, enjoyment is something that is a personal gift that God gives. I mean, think about the, the, the relationship that God has with us as His children. And then think about the relationship that you have with your children. I mean, you want to do things for your children because you love them. 
And you want to give them, you don't give them bad gifts, you give them good gifts. You do that, why? Again, because you love them. You see, the enjoyment that we get is that God is giving us the gift of life. Just like He gave the gift of Eden to Adam and Eve. But you see, a lot of times we, we find ourselves as Christians with the ho-hum syndrome, right? I mean, think about work. Oh, i got to go to work today. Or think about, oh, you know, I, I think words matter. And I think a lot of times we miscommunicate this to the world. But have you ever said, well, I've got to go to church tonight? Yeah, We've, I've said that before. Oh, I got, I, you know, I'd love to, but i got to go to church. Well, it sounds like it's a task, right? I remember when, uh, in 2012, uh, when I, we moved back, and uh, so, you know, it was, we were kind of in limbo, and all right, God, where do you want us to go, and what do you want us to do? And so I wasn't serving on staff uh, anywhere at the time, and, and I remember people asking me, you know, hey, what are you doing? You know, where, where, are, you, where are you serving at? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not serving anywhere right now. Uh, I get to preach. I'm not responsible uh, like Pastor Tony every Sunday morning to get up and, and to leave. I get to do it because I have a desire to communicate God's Word. And so it was an opportunity that God gave me that, hey, you get, you get the opportunity to do that. And God gave me many opportunities to do that. And you see, a lot of times we find ourselves, oh, well, I, I got to do that. Oh, I got to be here. I got to serve. But it ought to be something that we do out of joy. That we say, well, no, I don't have to. I get to go to church. I mean, we could live in North Korea or, you know, some other country that doesn't allow Christianity to be openly professed. But we get to do those things. I get to serve the Lord. Uh, Melanie's not in here, but I remember uh, when we had, uh, I'll never forget this. We had, a, we had a, a, a child, a foster child that we were able to keep. And uh, so, you know, it's always hard when they go back. And uh, so it, it was good that they were going back home. And so the child was able to go back and uh, to go to their mother. And uh, I, it, it was hard. You know, it, it's hard to do that. Foster care is hard. And so I remember the day that the child went home. I remember Melanie saying, it was an honor to serve you. And I, I, I just thought about that. I mean, think, what if, we, what if we approach life that way? That it is an honor to serve the Lord Jesus. It is an honor to be a child of God. And that we extract enjoyment not out of what we accomplish through it, but from the one who gave it to us. So enjoyment is this gift that God gives us. And those who are right with God are the ones who get the benefit of the labor of the world. He says in verse 26 of chapter 2, this is what he said. He says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. Think about that. And so those who are right with God are the ones who get the benefit of the labor of the world. You see, life in God's world is a gift. It's not something that we gain. It's a gift. You know, what's the old saying that uh, it's called the present for a reason? It's a gift. 
that God gives you. And so what do we do with that? How do we, how do we see that? You know, we, we should be the ones that are most joyous that we get an opportunity to live another day. I have a neighbor right now, and, and he, is, he is on death's door. And any moment he could pass away, and he has no idea when that moment will come, but he knows it's coming. And, and the life that he has, the oxygen that is, that is still presently in his lungs, is a gift that only God can control. If we could control that, if he could control it, he would prolong his life. Same for you and I. We find ourselves at death's door. If we had the opportunity to do something about that, we would do it, but we don't. It is a life given only from God, a gift in which he alone can give. And so the gift of God does not make this meaningless or this dissatisfaction go away. The gift of God makes the vanity enjoyable. So if we, if we get to a point, now, if we get to a point with sovereignty that we say, God, you are sovereign, and I believe that to the point that I'm going to actually live my life that way. Saying it's one thing, living it is another thing, right? Saying it is one thing, living it is another thing. And so the gift, uh, it doesn't change the situation, just like knowledge doesn't change the situation, but it makes it more enjoyable knowing that this is just for a season. This is just the moment in which God has given me. You see, this is what the world says, to eat, drink, and to what? To be merry. To eat, drink, and to be merry, and that there is all that there is. Listen, you know, this is what the world says. You know, why worry about that? Oh, there's, you can't change any of that. So listen, just enjoy yourself while you can. All there is is this life. That's the lie that the devil has sold it. All there is is this life. Everything, remember I said earlier, everything's become subjective. It's in the moment. It's just whatever my interpretation of today is, is what it actually is, which is totally false. But So some say eat, drink, and be merry because that is all that there is. But Solomon says eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. He's saying that if you change your perspective of how you see the life, which is a gift from God, and how you live it, that you won't live it in saying that it's just going to whisk away, that there's no reason for me giving my best, there's no reason for me enjoying the things in which the Lord has given me, because they're all going to go away anyway, and someone else will get to enjoy them. No, Solomon says that is something that God has given you as a gift. About a year ago, we, we bought a house, and so uh, it's a ten, it was 10 years old last year when we bought it. And so as I'm studying through this in the past couple of weeks, I, I got to thinking about that. I got to think about what Solomon said about, you know, all the laborers that, you know, the, those who please the Lord get to enjoy. And so I thought about my house. It's the same thing for you, most likely. Uh, is 10 years ago, uh, someone sat down and said, you know, we should build a house. And so they, they got someone to come clear the lot and uh, they sat down and they thought out, hey, wh- wh- how do we want to build this house? Okay, well, we want this square footage and let's get a, a loft up top and, and let's, build it, you know, let's build it with this type of brick. And so they did. And so they built the house. And so then they sold the house and uh, another gentleman bought the house, which is who we bought it from. And so uh, he came in and said, you know, I really like this house. But if I add this in the backyard, this would make it nicer. And if I put a fence up, you know, it would really enclose the backyard. It just would look so nice. I landscaped, and he did a phenomenal job of landscaping. 
And so he did all the, the you know, labor, and, and he enjoyed the labor of the first guy, and then the second guy comes. So then we come along last July, and we see the house and say, wow, you've done an amazing job with this house. We love the way this house looks. We would like to buy your house. And then it would become ours. And so he says, well, yeah, sure, I'll, you know, I, I've got it up for sale. I'd love for you to buy my house. And so we purchased the house. And so guess what? Now I get to look out my back window and enjoy all of the landscaping and all the stuff that's done in the backyard. And I got to enjoy all the flowers in the front. We were, we were leaving for church this afternoon, and Melanie was looking back at the hibiscus bush, and she said, you know, it's just about to bloom. It didn't look so pretty. I didn't plant that. Someone else did. But I'm enjoying it. And it's the same way in your life. It's all the things that we think that we're striving for and this moment is here and now and I, you know, I've got to be so enthralled and distracted from the things that really matter. You know, whoever those guys were that built the house and lived in the house, they're not enjoying that now. I am. And it's the same thing in your life. So the mark that you leave is not what you own, but it's what you do. That's the mark that Solomon is saying here with the perspective. And so he says that's what there actually is. You see, when we accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that reality can stop us from expecting too much from the good things that we pursue. Now, I'm not saying any of it's bad. I mean, again, do not misunderstand my point here. But what I am saying is that if you try to extract satisfaction from whatever it is, then you're missing the whole point of the gift that God has given you. And so when we see it from the right perspective, as Solomon is challenging here, then we can stop expecting too much from it. As I was thinking about this, I thought about Redbox. You know what Redbox is? You've gotten a Redbox movie? It's kind of like the Redbox reality. You know, so Redbox, if you don't know, it works like this. It's a movie, a DVD rental. And so you, uh, you go and pick out whatever movie it is that you want, and you take it home, and you watch it. And then you enjoy that movie for 24 hours, and then you take it back, and then someone else goes and watches it. It's kind of like the four-wheeler that, uh, that my family owned when I was younger. My uh, parents bought a four-track, Honda four-tracks. Right when four-wheelers came out, and so we're all excited because my family now owns a four-wheeler. Like, that's the pinnacle of life for a, a young boy, right? And so my parents buy a four-tracks. Well, we hardly ever got to ride the four-tracks. You know why? Because it was new. And if we rode it, then it wouldn't be new anymore. And so we couldn't mess it up, and so we can't ride it because it's new. And so my family, my parents would hide the key from us, and they wouldn't let us ride it. And then my dad ended up trading it away. And so we really never enjoyed the four tracks. Now, we owned the four tracks, or my parents did, for you know, several years, two or three, four or five years. But we never really enjoyed the four tracks because we were afraid that we'd tear, or they were afraid that we would tear it up. I wanted to tear it up. I wanted the chance to ride it so you know, I could enjoy it. But what if we looked at life and the things that come in and out of our lives like we look at Redbox? We just take it for what it is. Here's a movie that I had the opportunity to watch. And so for the next 24 hours, I'm going to enjoy the opportunity to do that. What if we looked at relationships that way? At the people at work, it's just a moment in time. Whether it's 20 or 30 or 40 years or if it's 20 or 30 or 40 weeks, it's just a moment in time. That God has given you the opportunity to be who you are for His kingdom in that relationship. Or whether it be church, I mean, you know, many of you have been here way longer than me. And so look at all the people that have come and gone. Look at all the opportunities that you've had in your life. Look at all the possessions that have come and gone in your life. 
And what if we looked at those as a redemptive view of saying, hey, this is just something, a gift that God has given me. I will receive it as a gift, and I will treat it as a gift from God because it's only temporary, and it'll simply fade away. If you're in D group, this last week you read, don't store your treasures up on earth, right? But store them up in heaven. Isn't that what D group reading was this past week? And so he says, pursue things for what they really are. Don't expect too much from it, but just let it be what it is. You see, we learn to pursue things for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be. Think about that. What we need them to be to make ourselves happy. We have these expectations in life of relationships and things and places and positions. And we say, if only these things, and fill in the blank, could achieve my expectations, then and only then will I be happy. But Solomon says, why don't you just receive them for what they are? You see, ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living. I mean, of course, we work to pay bills, but we we do that not just to earn a living, but we do it. We, we all, you know, all have jobs. We do it to find satisfaction, right? We want to feel like we've achieved something, that we've, we've climbed the ladder of success or we've accomplished certain accolades of tenure in our jobs. And we want to find that satisfaction. We want to find purpose in everything that we do. And, and in the end, we hope that maybe there'll be a reputation for ourselves that we have achieved a certain level of success. If you don't believe that about your job, you're probably not a good employee, right? At least that's what the world says. But what if the pleasure that we were given was simply something that God was giving us for that moment? For instance, what if, what if the pleasure of food is simply a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? Or how about this? This is something that I've really, really been spending time thinking about. What if work in itself was never intended to make us successful. What if, God, what if God never intended for our jobs to make us successful, but to make us faithful and generous? I mean, think about, what is it that you're most faithful to? And without you answering, I can answer for you, it's your job. I, I can't tell you the last time I, I missed work for being sick. And you're probably the same way. You're most faithful in your life to your job. You get up every morning, regardless. I mean, and this is not believers. This is humanity. I mean, the 40-hour week and punching the clock or whatever you want to call it. Every person, they'll be on time to work, but they'll be late to church, right? The world will be. That's the way that works is we're faithful to our jobs, and we'll show up time after time after time. And what if God was doing that? What if the creation of work was simply that God was teaching the character trait of faithfulness? Because that's where you're probably the most faithful in your life. So God taught you faithfulness. What if it was generosity that God was teaching you with your job? Now, I'm not talking about you sitting down and stroking a check. I'm talking about with your time. Last week, Pastor Tony made the comment at Deathbed Confessions. I've heard some myself. It's never, hey, I wish I'd have worked more. It's never what people say. Because they've been generous with their time to the point to where they've missed a lot. Right? They've given so much of themselves to their job that they missed ball games and 
you know, milestones in kids' lives or opportunities for the gospel, mission trips or whatever it may be because they've been generous. So the, the world is learning faithfulness and they're learning generosity. So what if we stop looking at work as a means for us to have satisfaction in our own success and we looked at it as that, God, thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given me to learn what faithfulness really is, to learn what generosity really looks like. You see, in chapter 1, at the heart of our human condition is an unwillingness to accept things as they really are. In chapter 1, the heart of the human condition is an unwillingness to accept things as they really are. We don't want things to be as they really are. So we live in this this surreal world that we create in order to accept the realities. So the preacher's whole point in this section is to show us that the world cannot be leveraged to suit me, that I can't make pleasure achieve my success, but that life is meant to be simply enjoyed and not to be mastered. That is simply meant to be enjoyed. That the, the life that we've been given from the Lord is simply a gift. Not everything can be fixed. In the fallen world in which we live, not everything is a problem that we can solve. So what if we just accepted our broken friends as broken friends? What if we accepted our uh, life in which we found ourselves? Don't, don't you think that if God had intended for your life to be different than it, that it would be? I mean, wherever you are, that's where you are, right? And so God has put you there. And so the moment in which you find yourself, God's allowed you to be there. And so why don't you receive that moment as a gift from God and live it to the maximum of His glory? You see, up until this point, Solomon has uh, not had God anywhere in the equation. He's not mentioned anything about God. All the way to the end of chapter 2, you don't see God in there. But in the next three verses, he mentions God three separate times. So this is what he says in verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his tool. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So finally we get to the moment to where Solomon says, Knowledge, pleasure, work, apart from God, are empty. And then he says, For to the one who pleases him, God's given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so this is what Solomon says. He says that God is the one who gives enjoyment and satisfaction. You're not going to find it in anything else. And it doesn't matter what that is. Solomon said, I've tried it all. I've been all places. I've done all things. None of that finds, uh, has allowed me to find satisfaction. Only joy and satisfaction come from the Lord. And then he says that God is the one who gives knowledge and wisdom and joy. God is the one who gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. It is not a pursuit of humanity that achieves that. It's something that God Himself gives. 
And so from these two things flow all the happiness in life. Your capacity for happiness can be achieved with these two things. Because in achieving joy and satisfaction in the Lord, in knowing that it is God who gives wisdom and knowledge and joy, it will allow us to see ourselves as we truly are. And that is that we are dependent creatures made for our relationship with our Creator. You see, we're, we're not in control. And as much as we want to believe we are, we're not. We're dependent upon God and God alone. And Solomon brings it so clear into, uh, into the picture here in chapter 2 is that we are built for a relationship with Jesus. Remember I said earlier that relationally you can't be replaced. And so God desires that our attitude and that our, our uh, achievement, our desire for achievement and desire for success and desire for happiness and satisfaction, that it only comes through Him because He's the only one that can give true joy and true satisfaction, that we'll never find it with more knowledge, more pleasure, or more work. It only comes through Jesus. Let's pray tonight.